race is a very important variable when we're looking at the actual probability of will there be an encounter. And in fact, what we find is relative to a white driver traveling the exact same speed, minorities are 24 to 33% more likely to be stopped for speeding. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring a new study on traffic stops and whether race plays a role in them. Groundbreaking economist John List is well known for using real-world data field experiments to answer economic questions as well as to examine a myriad of social issues. He's the Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at UChicago. He's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow at the Econometric Society, and recipient of multiple economics awards. He's the author most recently of The Voltage Effect. John also served as chief economist for Uber and Lyft, And in this study, he's utilizing high-frequency location data of Lyft drivers in Florida to look at the effect of driver race on traffic stops and on fines for speeding. He was joined in our conversation by co-author and graduate student Justin Holtz. John List, Justin Holtz, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to be here. So as you know in your research, we already know a lot about what happens once a traffic stop has occurred, uh, how the results are different, likely to be different based on race. Uh, Minority drivers more likely to be cited for speeding, less likely to get out of a ticket, more likely to be convicted of a misdemeanor for speeding. So John, here your main question was, well, what about the probability of being stopped in the first place? What prompted you to explore this? Yeah, I I think that's right. When you look at the literature, there is a large collection of empirical work that looks at after you've been pulled over or after there's been a search warrant, what happens across different types of people. For example, are, are men treated differently than women? Are blacks and browns and whites treated differently from one another? And that picks up an important part of the story, which is essentially conditional on an encounter. Is there differential treatment? But in the end of the day, what you really want to know is what is the total effect of, for example, race on policing? And that's exactly what we're trying to go after here. We say, look, there's a first step here. And that's, are people treated differently in the actual probability or the approach of police officers to different types of people? So when you think about that question, I like to think about that question as the denominator question. And what I mean by the denominator question is, you know, we know conditional on an encounter what happens, but we don't know the exact distribution of the violations across different types of people. So in the end of the day, that's what we really need to know is how many criminal activities are taking place. And of all of of those criminal activities, 
which ones are being picked on, so to speak, by law enforcement officers. And that's exactly why we're going after this question is because we really want to know the total effect of things like race and gender on the fact of you're picked up and then you get a ticket. So it's essentially we want to know the total effect and that's what we're going after here. Your primary finding is that, yes, race does make a difference in whether someone is stopped for a traffic infraction. No, look, our, our bottom line finding is at once depressing. And it really tells us that the literature that's out there right now that says people are treated differently once an encounter occurs actually spills over to whether an encounter occurs. And what we find is relative to a white driver traveling the exact same speed, minorities are 24 to 33% more likely to be stopped for speeding. So a quarter to a third more likely. Uh, Wow. Uh, Is it fair to say this is statistically significant? (laughs) I think it's fair to say that it is highly statistically significant and it's highly statistically depressing. And you found that the fines were higher too, right? That's right. So the finding of racial minorities get pulled over more, that actually spills over to the fine as well. What we find is that minorities pay 23 to 34% more fines than white counterparts as well. All right. Well, let's get to some of the specifics in a minute. But first, Justin, could you talk about why we didn't already have some answers to this question about race and its effect on the probability of being stopped? Why wasn't that out there? Sure, I'd be happy to. So in most of these studies where people try to understand how the police are treating uh, minorities or white individuals differently, what they do is they go to usually Freedom of Information Act requests and they obtain administrative records that contain information about how police treated minorities or white drivers. And these administrative records only contain encounters that escalated to the point that they needed to be reported. And so if you have a driver who is never speeding, then they're never going to appear in this data set. And so outside of this high frequency location data that we use in this type of paper, there really is no way to observe individuals who are not pulled over. All right. So then let's talk about how you went about deciding what kinds of data might help you get some answers here. Uh, John, I know you were the chief economist at both Uber and Lyft at different points in time, of course. Um, so uh, I'm curious, <laughs> did, did ride sharing kind of pop right into your head as a possible source of data? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I was a chief economist at Lyft for four years. And one of my goals as chief economist is I want to think about what is the potential value of private sector data to help inform major social challenges. A lot of people don't know this, but there is a GPS in every Lyft driver's car, in fact, in their phone. So we know exactly where they're driving. We know how fast they're driving. And when you have detailed information like that, that gives you an indication of how often are you speeding and how often are you above the particular speed limit on that road. 
Now, with just those data, you've solved the denominator problem with criminal activity because you know exactly what is the propensity of somebody who's white or who's black or who's brown to break the law in terms of the speed limit. Now you have the makings of really good science that's driven by the access to private sector data. And we should make clear here that drivers do know that they have that GPS and, and, and that that data is being Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, let's be very clear. This is not Big Brother. <laughs> this is not um, something that is done in secret. All drivers on Uber and Lyft know that their phone is a GPS. Why? Because we have maps and we tell people about which routes you should take after you pick somebody up. Right. So those mappings and that GP, those GPS pings those are to serve the client and the driver in a better way. It's, it's not meant to try to figure out, are people speeding? But the fact that you have that service and that means that gives you a shot to learn about some very important major social challenge, like the issue we're talking about today. All right. So, Justin, I, I, I'm hoping you can explain for us uh, exactly what you were looking at. So you have the data from Lyft uh, coming from the drivers themselves. Talk us through what you were comparing and how you went about that comparison. Okay. So we had the data from Lyft, but we also had data from a couple of other sources. So in order to compare the speeding behavior across uh, drivers on Lyft, then we also needed to know what the speed limit was on every road and what the citation was for driving different speeds. We obtained that information from the government. We also needed to know whether the driver was stopped or not. And so in order to get that information, we made some Freedom of Information Act requests to, the, to Florida, and we obtained information on every driver who had been caught speeding between August 2017 and, and August 2020. And then once we had this information, then we would use a variety of different approaches to try to control for every type of influence that could be affecting whether a driver gets pulled over and potentially could be correlated with race. Like what? Yeah, so we use two different approaches. In both of these approaches, the, the main variable that we control for is how fast the driver was going. So as John mentioned, we have very detailed information on the location that the drivers are driving at any given point in time. And this allows us to infer the speed that the driver was driving as well. And so this is important because this is the sole dimension that police officers are supposed to use when deciding whether to stop a driver. But we also obtain other information about, uh, about the drivers. So we obtain information about the make and model of the car, how old the car is. We obtain information about the characteristics of the road, how many lanes it has, what the average traffic on the road is, and different things like that. And then we try to control for all of these things when we compare the ticket rates or the amount of fines between white drivers and minority drivers. Just to add, I think it's useful to think about if you have two identical cars, they are both going down the exact same part of a freeway, and they are both speeding by, say, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. One of the cars has a black driver or a brown driver, the other car has a white driver. And then we simply ask, everything is the same except for the race of the driver. Does the white driver get pulled over 
for speeding more or less or the same as the black and brown drivers. And what we basically find is, no, when you set all of these things equal, the black and brown drivers get pulled over about a quarter to a third more, 25 to 33% more than the white driver. And then the question comes, why is that the case? Hmm. Well, that leads me to my next question for either of you. Um, why Florida? Uh, because certainly there are states with, for example, higher percentages of minorities. How do you extrapolate out from findings in Florida and from a single rideshare company to say something about the wider problem? What I'm going to say is, first of all, kudos to Florida for <laughs> giving us the data, right? So we've, we filed a Freedom of Information Act. Okay. and. And Florida has given us the data, but Justin will tell you how we tried to get Texas data. And look, we want data across every state, but I'll let Justin tell his part of the story and then I'll tell mine. Yeah, so the reason that we chose Florida is largely a data availability issue. So we needed to find a state that had information on speeding tickets and also had information about the driver's race and information that we could use to link this data to the Lyft data. And so Florida is nice because they have very generous Freedom of Information Act request laws. And so when we asked for the data in this in the state, they were very forthcoming and they provided us with every every kind of data that we could want. Were there other states that you wanted? Yeah, so we we tried some other states. There was limitations in every other state that we tried, mainly because in Florida, whenever you observe a speeding ticket, that speeding ticket is linked to the driver's license number of hmm. the the person who receives the ticket. And so that made it really simple to match the data from the traffic stops to the Lyft drivers. In other states, most of the time, you can't observe the driver's license number. So instead you're left with things like the first and last name of the driver, which can be very difficult to merge from traffic stops to the to Lyft drivers. And then how do you extrapolate out from that? Yeah, so you might imagine that the, the results don't necessarily generalize to non-Lyft drivers. So it's very easy to observe whether a Lyft driver is a Lyft driver because it'll have a, a symbol on all their cars that denote this right. and police might be able to see this when they when they pull somebody over. So you might imagine that the results might generalize to those other settings. However, this sort of highlights the need for this type of data to be used in other cases. So there's other types of high frequency location data that people could gain access to if they wanted to that might be used to understand whether these results generalize to other types of drivers. Yeah, I think that's important to point out is that you can plug and play now. Once you have these elements that we have in our data set, you can test and see, does it happen in California? Does it happen in Nevada? Does it happen in Maryland? My intuition is that you will find similar results to what we have found in Florida. But again, that's just intuition. That's not based on strong science. John, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your somewhat atypical background, if I may. Um, sure, sure. As I mentioned earlier, you were the chief economist at Uber, then Lyft, uh, also Walmart. First of all, what does a chief economist do inside a corporation like any of those? Uh, one might think that the CFO would be the chief economist. Yeah, that's a really good question. So in all three of my experiences, each of those instances 
kind of largely the same. Any important economic decision that's being made, like one example could be, what are the best ways to incentivize drivers on the Lyft platform to work more or work in different hours of the week? Or at Walmart, what are the best ways to give value back to customers? These are all economic questions, and these are all questions that if you have a chief economist, that person and their team can think hard about using economic principles, but also bringing big data insights. And what I mean by that is each of these organizations that I mentioned have access to really large data sets. And I oftentimes hear people saying, you know what, the new oil in our economy, that's data. It's not true. It's just not true. What is true is that the data refiner is the person who holds all of the value here. It's easy to get mounds and mounds of data, but what's difficult is using a disciplined approach to trying to tease out what is a causal relationship within those data. So we can look at mounds and mounds of data like we have here, and we can try to make heads or tails out of those data, try to figure out where we can make a causal statement, and then figure out solutions. Things like, you know, what's a solution to what we're talking about today? Well, I think we should have more cameras on roads. I think traffic enforcement should largely be taken from human hands and put into automata or automatic hands, pictures. That is the only means that I see that we can attenuate this type of human bias that we're not only observing in our data set, but we observe ubiquitously across the economy. You are known as a pioneer of, of randomized, real-world economic research and field experiments, um, like we've been talking about today. Can you explain what that is and how it's different from traditional economic research? So, I'm not gonna wait for data to come to me. I'm actually going to go out to the real world and use randomization or use experimentation. Essentially, I put people in a treatment or control group. Mm -hmm. So maybe at Lyft, it would be one driver gets slightly higher pay than another driver. And that's random or based on a lottery. So we can say that it's fair because it was based on a lottery. The key here is that I'm controlling the assignment of who gets the treatment and who gets the control. And because I'm controlling that treatment assignment, that allows me to make, let's say, a, a stronger causal statement because I don't need the extra assumptions in many cases that you need when you analyze data that somebody else or something else has generated. There's also an, an advantage because I can have a question and then I can go out and generate the data to answer that exact question. So that's a huge advantage of field experimentation. And I started running with that in the early 90s. And I think it's fair to say now, what, some 30 years later, that field experiments are really alongside the more traditional approaches of trying to say something causal within data. All right. Uh, and, and finally, a question for, for both of you. 
what kind of real world effects are you hoping to have with this research? How does it potentially affect policy discussions, both at the state level and nationally? Justin? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of policy implications that come out of this paper. As John mentioned, I think one way to reduce the inequality that's that's in speeding tickets would be to switch from using police officers to something more automated like speeding cameras that don't have this issue of bias in, in the levying of tickets. Another thing that, that comes up is that you know, race-blind approaches to disincentivizing risky behavior, such as car insurance rates that increase when drivers are cited for speeding, may not actually be so race-blind because uh, minority drivers are going to be facing higher levels of policing, and so it may look like they're committing crimes at higher rates, and this leads to maybe disproportionate punishments for those groups, but in our data, that's just not the case. It's really the police's behavior that leads to these different outcomes, not so much the behavior of drivers of different races. I agree 100%. I hope the frontline results resonate, and I hope we begin to develop, let's say, approaches and tools that can help attenuate this type of behavior. But I do want to say more generally, I hope our study is a call to action. I hope organizations take a look at our work and begin to think, do we have data or do we have similar types of problems in our neck of the woods or our area of the world that we could actually explore and use the general design that Justin and the other co-authors and I use in this paper to try to shine light on other areas of the economy where we could make better using science. Any notion of what you'd like to study next? Something that you have not gotten to yet that you're like, I really, really want to try this this real world process um, with, with that issue. So I, I co-direct the TMW Center, which is basically a center that is exploring early childhood. And what I'm talking about with early childhood is what are the best approaches to grow a child's brain from the age of zero to five? And what are the best approaches to, let's say, eliminate the opportunity gap? And what, what a lot of your listeners might not know is that the opportunities between, let's say, minorities and majorities is a very deep opportunity gap. You start to observe differences in brain development of a three-year-old white child versus a three-year-old black child. So Dana Suskin and I have been exploring different approaches to try to attenuate or, or lessen or get rid of that, uh, that opportunity gap. And one particular project we've been working on is what we call the North Star Project. And that's an actual piece of technology like a Fitbit. And child wears it and so does caretaker, whether it's the parent or the, the caregiver the teacher, for example, and we can observe the interaction that the child has with the teacher or the parent or the caregiver. And that allows us then to learn in turn, what are the best ways to grow a child's brain? You know, it's from taking turns and conversations with the child to using more language or or a different level of tone. We're trying to look under the hood 
of why are these parental interactions so important? A lot of the literature says the parent-child interactions are key to developing the child's brain. But we don't know exactly why. What is it within an interaction that works the best? And what parts of the parental interaction should we try to incentivize them to do less of? So that's the box that I find really intriguing and that for the next several years will take a lot of my attention. Well, John List, Justin Holtz, thank you so much for a terrific conversation today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>